For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Unleashing the Beast. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed on TNT. This is your host, Mark Morano. All right, breaking news. The Panama Canal is suffering a major disruption, and we can report on TNT Radio due to climate change. Just when you thought you get out, they pull you back in. The BBC News is claiming that climate change is disrupting shipping at the Panama Canal. And we're going to break this down for you. Let's go with clip one. This is the BBC in all seriousness. But across the Atlantic, the other canal vital to international trade, the Panama Canal, is also suffering from major disruption as many fewer ships are now getting through. The culprit this time, though, is climate change, as Michelle Fleury reports. Is this the world's most expensive traffic jam? Ships lined up for days outside the Panama Canal last August. Roughly $270 billion worth of cargo flows through here each year. But this vital link between two oceans is running out of water. Running out of water. And you know why. Climate change! Climate change! Why not? And where do you see how activist this BBC report gets? Let's continue. This is part two of the BBC blaming climate change for disrupting the Panama Canal. Unlike the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal works by lifting boats up through a set of locks into an artificial lake 85 feet above sea level. But it means the canal here is reliant on rainwater, which is in short supply. 2023 has been the second driest year in the history of the Panama Canal. Ilia Espina de Marotta, the canal's chief sustainability officer, says the drought, made worse by the El Nino weather phenomenon, is expected to last until May. The big problem we're having is lack of rain. In the rainy season, which goes from May until December, we're supposed to get tons of rain and fill the lakes. This year, there was very little rain. We had El Nino year. And now that we're in summer, the lake started the summer with very low level. So we had to cut down on number of ships being able to transit the canal to maintain the lake level through the summer. Did you get that? It's the driest, the lack of rain, a drought. The worst, second worst is what they said. Second worst drought in the Panama Canal history. Wow, second worst. Was the worst the year before? No. The worst was 73 year, 74 years ago now, I believe, in 1950. That was the worst year for the Panama Canal history, according to their record books of the area. And that's what they're referencing. So 2023 was the second worst, and that's due to climate change. Remember, in 1950, uh, we didn't even have, 80% of the CO2 came after World War II globally. So after the war, the war and industrialization, uh, economic growth. So you can't blame CO2 for 1950s drought. So it's the worst in 74 years. Well, what happened 74 years ago? That's, that's point one. Second point would be, on every metric, from hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, droughts, wildfires. There is no trend in global droughts. So yeah, uh, it's a random selection. The Panama Canal is going to get a drought. Somewhere else is going to get flooding rains. You can't blame it on climate change. It's silly. It's nonsensical. 
Part three, where do you see how activists BBC gets with their hard science now out of the way? They can now tell you that this is why climate change is such a major factor and we need to do something about it. Clip three. To conserve water, fewer boats are allowed to pass through the Panama Canal each day. This is one of the lucky ones. But a changing climate is putting billions of dollars of trade at risk and raises difficult questions about the future of this engineering marvel. The Canal Authority is trying to reuse as much water as possible. It's considering building more reservoirs to store water and is even exploring cloud seeding to make it rain more. We believe it's climate change. If you look at the world 2023, the Amazon River, very low. Mississippi River had to stop transits, very low level. So it's not only Panama, it's the world that has seen a lot of different climate situations this 2023. While other routes suffer disruption from politics and piracy, the problems at the Panama Canal are a reminder that climate change may yet be the biggest crisis for global trade. Michelle Fleury, BBC News, Panama Canal. And there you have it, the activism. Climate change is affecting global trade. We must do something about it now. We need carbon taxes. We need to sweep up hair. We need to stop human breath. We need net zero. We need to collapse energy, agriculture, food. We have to because it's the second drought, driest year in Panama Canal's history. It hasn't been this dry since 1950. One little pinpoint on the globe, and they're going to make a whole federal case out of it. And by the way, despite what you may have seen on screen, I think there was a, a you know, the, the graphic may have been covering it. This was not the anal canal. This was, unfortunately, that's what it said. This is the the uh, the Panama Canal. The word Panama and the sea got cut out. So just wanted to clarify that in case anyone out there, that was unintentional uh, on that part. But so the Panama Canal, this is, this is what you call reporter lobbying. They go there with a half-assed, half-baked, bull bleep story about how this is the second driest year. It hasn't been this dry since 1950 before all the CO2, you know, as the CO2 was just beginning to accelerate into the atmosphere. You couldn't even blame it on it. And then they say global trade is being disrupted and this is horrible for shipping. It's going to cause supply chain. Everything is thrown out. And then the end, they sort of end with their plea that we have to solve the climate crisis is just another example of how we can solve this and all live kumbaya and happiness. Um, I, I don't know what to say. And this just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And the other funny thing is another story. This was uh, a Eureka press release, but it was a Eureka press release of Flinders University. It's an alert. Peer-reviewed publication. You know what that means? Hard science, unbiased science, reviewed scrupulously by peers of people who actually can't dissent and criticize the study because they end their career. So they just rubber stamp it. It's called peer rubber stamp, I believe is what they should be. But anyway, peer-reviewed study. Climate change increases the risk of preterm births by 60% in humans and will devastate children's health without fast global action. Now, when you see that as the headline, what do you think that study is about? Is it actually about 60% of the kids being preterm birth? No. It's about fast global action. These are written, designed as a lobbying campaign to get you to urge and accept fast global action on climate change. 
Because fast global action is the only way to solve it. We just need to turn over our freedom, our liberty, our freedom of movement, our plentiful food, our energy. We just got to turn it over to these people because we need that global action. You know, and global problem requires a coordinated global action. In fact, doesn't just require global action. According to the peer-reviewed study alert, this is fast global action. They need fast. Like no time to argue. This is an emergency. It's a crisis. Just the hell with even debating it. We need to act fast. Act now because 60% of children will be pre-born. Okay, it's going to devastate children's health. Are you against the kids? Are you against grandma? This is insane. It's stupidity at its highest, highest level. Increased numbers of preterm birth, higher instances of respiratory disease, and death in more children in the hospital are some of the stark outcomes of the world is facing from the impacts of extreme climate change. We're not facing climate change. We're facing extreme climate change. I don't know. I don't even know if I want to go through it. It's just so silly. The morbid reality will devastate children's health for generations without global action, according to the alarming new research. Let's read that sentence again. Morbid reality. Morbid. So this is like a graveyard reality, right? Your death reality. Devastate children's health. Whoa. So it's morbid. It's going to devastate kids for generations, not like, oh, for three years. Generations of kids are going to be dying and devastated without what? Global action. That's not the end. According to alarming new research. So it's got to be alarming. They can't even understand the stupidity of communication errors in this. I mean, you just pile, I'm just going to say it, shit upon shit upon shit, and you end up with an even bigger pile of shit research. That's what's going on. I know, I know the sensors are at me right now. Hold on. I got to let the 10 seconds catch up here. They're going to they're gonna delete my words. It's coming. Okay. I should be all scrubbed. Disregard it. Strike it from the record. You never heard any bad words there. Sorry about that. I just, I couldn't do it. Okay. Let's continue. Scientists have spent decades warning the world about the risk of extreme temperatures, floods, and bushfires. But the new study published in the journal Science. This is the journal Science. This is one of the top peer-reviewed studies. Journals. This study is the first to collect all the available scientific evidence for the effects of climate change on children's health. Do you understand that? This is now collecting it on children's health. The first ever. This is seminal, a landmark study. You cannot deny this study. This, the, the data, this is data. You can't argue with data. Data is hard science identified which particular climate-driven extremes are linked to certain detrimental health impacts for future generations. The study was led by Louis Weida, researcher at the University of Western Australia in Weeyan Respiratory Center at Tethlon Kids Institute. Hmm. Matthew F Flinders, professor of global ecology, and Corey Bradshaw from Flinders University. I'd never heard of Flinders. I guess it's in Flinders or Flinders. It's in uh, Australia shows the risk of preterm birth will increase by 60% on average from exposure to extreme temperatures. So extreme temperatures is what's going to do it. I mean, it's so stupid. And what's interesting is this is from the Respiratory Research Center of Teflon Kids Institute. 
You think they're they're looking for more research money and more funding for the Teflon Center, Telethon, sorry, Kids Institute, uh, the Respiratory Research Center. It's just so base. It's so obvious. It's so embarrassing. The researchers reviewed the results of 163 studies. Most of these are just modeling studies, which they put in garbage and they come come out with any study. I'm going to stop right there, but this is the crap that's passing for peer-reviewed study in the journal Science, our most revered scientific journal. Just nonsense. <sighs> All right. Um, Elizabeth Warren is in the news. This is funny. When I saw the headline, I'm like, ah, someone's probably exaggerating. There's no way. That, no, I'm going to watch this clip. Elizabeth Warren getting off a private jet. Elizabeth Warren is a huge Democrat senator, huge climate activist, always Green New Deal, pushing for restrictions on travel, pushing restrictions on food, the net zero agenda, the UN Paris Agreement. She's all in. She's criticized you know, the Biden administration for not doing enough. She's really all in. So she's caught with a video camera and she knows it, someone filming her deplaning, if you will, different from debanking where the bank cancels you, but this is deplaning, getting off a plane, a private plane, a private jet, gas guzzling private jet that'll use up more fuel in one trip than you probably will in a lifetime of your, uh, you know, your SUV. Elizabeth Warren, watch this clip because she's walking off the plane and she's aware there's cameras and she makes a incredibly intentional, obvious effort to hide herself from the camera person. Take a look. This is clip five. Yes. If you watch the end, if there's any doubt in your mind that maybe it's just random selection and it might look that way, towards the very end, the last four or five seconds of that, you can see her like dart over because uh, they're very clear where the camera person the man is. And they just she is not wanting that. They don't she does not want to give them that gotcha moment that so many other people have gone through from John Kerry to Bill Gates to Leonardo DiCaprio to Al Gore. We have all the footage. She was trying to avoid it, and I think she ended up doing worse, but she clearly is trying to hide from that camera person. And I always say, when you have these climate activists who love these private jets, they you know they want to literally ban gas-powered cars for you, add airline compliance costs to make cheap airfare a thing of the fast, so that only the wealthy can afford their their holidays, their uh, you know, their vacations. And they want to make it so flying in a climate emer declared climate emergency has to be, quote, morally justifiable. CNN wants carbon passports. Uh, when France banned flights of two and a half hours or less for due to climate change, they didn't ban private jets, just commercial jets, just for you peons out there. When Bill Gates was pushing for longer lockdowns in January of 2021, the same week he was on TV saying, follow Australia if you want to know how to handle a pandemic. Yeah, let's follow the most authoritarian response next to China. He then was bidding on the largest private jet transport company as he was saying those very words. So Elizabeth Warren knows what that means. What they what basically they want to keep carbon dioxide in the ground while using it lavishly and burning it at 20,000 feet in their private jets. I don't know what else to say. Okay. This was we covered this a little bit yesterday, but I wanted to follow up on it. We're gonna have some fun with this. 
It's like having a vegan cat. The Washington Post, and I couldn't remember this, it's called the Climate Advice Columnist. Why you should consider bunnies as your next pet. Rabbits have, quote, minimal paw prints, while cats and dogs have an outsized carbon footprint. So there's a whole story about basically get rid of dogs and cats because the pet food supply of your dog and cat, uh, the, the with meat in it, the industry that supplies dog and cat food in America is equivalent to the entire nation of the Philippines carbon footprint. That's what we're dealing with there. So I was on Fox and Friends. This is a while ago, but on the same exact issue, CNN had done the same issue uh, about how pets are not earth friendly and we need to get rid of pets and dogs and cats are the greatest of violators. They weren't recommending rabbits at the time. So they've come up with a solution. But here we are. There's a flashback clip of me uh, on Fox and Friends talking to uh, Rachel Campos Duffy about re climate restrictions on your pet. Roll clip six. Welcome back to Fox and Friends. CNN is placing blame on your household pets for their so-called role in climate change crisis. An article on CNN.com arguing, quote, their meat-heavy diet is the biggest contributor to their carbon paw prints, which requires an abundance of energy, land, and water to produce. There are, so, there are some new food developments on the market that are so worth looking into, especially for dogs, including lab-grown meat. A 2014 study found insects are a good and nutritious source of protein for pets. ClimateDepot.com publisher Mark Morano is here to react. Mark, I love that you brought your dog with you to this interview. You get a gold star for that. We love that. Listen, I've always known that this movement was anti-human, anti-child, and now it's anti-pet. Yes, it is. This is three-year-old French bulldog, Bella, and they're claiming that she's basically the equivalent of a vehicle, of an SUV driving around because of the uh, uh, this carbon footprint of your average dog. Here, I'll put it down. But this is a, a war on modern life. This is the yes. climate activist saying you can't have pets. We had Vogue magazine uh, in 2021 say, is it is it environmental vandalism to have a child? We have Bill Nye had a guest on promoting carbon mm -hmm. taxes uh, for children. And so what's happened is you have a actress Emma Thompson had actually one point said that uh, having pets could be important because during the climate crisis, we may have to eat them because they're a lot of protein. Uh, this has been going on now for a decade. They literally want to control, regulate every aspect of our lives. But what's most impressive about this study is this is their backdoor way to once again push insect eating and stop the eating of meat, which they're now currently trying to collapse modern agriculture, high yield agriculture uh, and livestock production. They want us to eat lab grown meat and insects. Yes, yeah, so and that was that was I think actually that was maybe one year ago that I did that segment. Just these are just re, every time the Washington Post, CNN, New York Times, the BBC, they just recycle the same old crap every oh it's time for this story. Oh, we haven't done the pet story in about 3 months. Let's run that one. Oh, the the recycle the human hair into hair shirts. Let's do that one. Human breath as a plus. Let's rerun that one. Uh let's do the gas stove one uh over here. Uh, let's do the premature infant one over here. Now it's going to devastate children's health. Uh okay, let's do the uh the wood-fired pizza oven and how they're destroying the world and we got the climate, we have to go after that. It just goes on and on. And it's just, it's, the sad thing is there are tens of millions of people out there that just eat this crap up and actually think, whoa, I'm, a, I'm an educated and I'm smart climate activist. Here's one last story before we go to break. Uh, 
And I have our guest, economist Darren Nelson, will be joining us here. So we'll hold on. I'll, I'll explain a little more in a minute. Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse blames the baby boom generation for kids today having climate anxiety. Now, it's not because the bit. Now, I might agree. Baby boom. Some baby boomers have scared their kids witless with baseless scientific claims. Now they have anxiety. That's not what Sheldon Whitehouse means. Our gift to younger generations, nice work, boomers. Climate change is fueling a new type of anxiety, therapists say. These are kids who've been scared, bleepless, witless. Uh, and Obama, I've played the clip here before of Obama telling about his daughters basically saying, what's the point of the future? Climate change is going to kill us all. This is what they believe all this crap from coming from Greta Thunberg and everything. And so this is what a U.S. senator is saying. It's because of the baby boom generation, because of the economic prosperity. It's because of what the World War II generation bestowed upon the baby boomers with the you know with the post-war baby boom is where the name comes from. And all those decades of economic growth, of American prosperity, they literally are saying that created the climate crisis, which created the anxiety among kids today. What is the exact opposite? The, the, the unscientific claptrap coming from people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Greta Thunberg and Al Gore and the media and academia and peer-reviewed studies like the journal uh, Nature and Science, uh, which published these model stories about how kids' health will be devastated unless we have urgent climate action. Did you get that? They're lobbyists. They're all. They're nothing more than lobbyists. Every scientific study on climate should be registered as a lobbyist for United Nations action or World Economic Forum or the Green New Deal. They are lobbying using science, bastardizing science for simple political lobbying purposes. That's the end of that. So that's what Senator Whitehouse is up to. It's just utter, uh, you know, continue to expect this stuff. Instead of telling kids there is no climate crisis, that Senator Whitehouse is a, uh, a charlatan and a sham for promoting this, uh, they're instead blame the baby boomers uh, for everything that's happened. All right. When we come back, we're going to be joined by economist uh, Darren Nelson. He's an independent economist, think tank, worked in Australia, worked in the U.S. And I, I knew him when he worked for Senator Malcolm Roberts in Australia. We're going to talk inflation, Biden, spending, budgets, all thing economics. When we come back on Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Steve Malzberg. I've said that she is a selfish witch and that she's abusing her elderly husband so she could remain first lady. I've been saying that for a long time, that she ought to be ashamed of herself, but she's not. She played second fiddle to Michelle Obama for eight friggin' years. Yep. Michelle Obama hated the place, could yeah. not wait to leave the White House mm -hmm. so she could go make millions writing books and selling non-existent shows on Netflix, Yes, which is fine. And that's what racket. you do post-presidency. Yeah. Jill Biden could not wait to live in the White House, and now she does not want to leave? Yeah. I could not agree with her more. I've been saying this over and over and over again. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love, and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. 
The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, well, joining us now is my friend and economist, Darren Nelson, a former Senate aide to uh, Malcolm Roberts of Australia, with the single greatest senator from Australia uh, in probably their history. Uh, this uh, Malcolm Roberts, one of my favorites. Darren Nelson has worked on climate issues, on economics. Uh, welcome to the program, Darren. Hello, good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for joining the show. All right. Well, um, let's talk the latest news. How is the fiscal health uh, of the United States of America? Here we are in February of 2024, entering in to a presidential race. Does Joe Biden have a lot to brag about or does he have a lot to hide in shame over? Well, how do we stand economically? Well, if you ask Joe himself, he, he's actually bragging about the, um, the, if you like, the reckless spending. Um, you know, he, I think he called, I can't remember the exact quote, but he called it a pack of lies or something like that. Um, although really he, he wasn't really, um, contending that spending's really large and growing. He just thinks it's a good thing because it helps people in his opinion. Um, as a economist, I would uh, beg to differ. Yeah, the exact quote I'm looking at here is that, uh, well, one of the exact quotes is, I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. And this goes <laughs> back to Roosevelt's New Deal, really. The idea is government grows massively and you just spend to help people and you can alleviate poverty. You can you know, help people with upward mobility was the claim. I remember Walter Williams one time saying, he was on with Julian Bond debating, and he said, well, you know, you cannot, the political system does not raise upward mobility. And, and Julian Bond goes, what about the Irish? And Walter Williams said, they are the lowest, they are the slowest rising uh, ethnic, white ethnic group in terms of upward mobility. It's because they took all the subsidies and handouts. But that idea that they're helping people, just give me a little bit of a root cause on that, because that really is the heart of the welfare state. And I would even say this is what most Americans would agree with that, that social spending, helping people with welfare type stuff is helpful. Uh, is it helpful from an economic perspective, from a human perspective? Uh, well, in a word, no. Um, I think a friend of Walter Williams, well, I think he was a friend, um, uh, Thomas Sowell, um, yes. is certainly sort of, you know, documented this probably better than most people in terms of like linking spending to, you know, how is this actually played out in, if you like, the disadvantaged groups in particular, obviously, um, Professor Soul's often focused on, you know, Black America because, you know, that's where he came from originally. Um, he, I believe he grew up in a Harlem that, you know, that didn't rely on sort of welfare handouts. So, look, it, it, it tends to do the opposite of what it claimed it's going to do. Um, for, the, for most people, they get hooked on it. It basically disincentivizes you to do a number of things. One is to, you know, to go work. I mean, that obviously depends on, you know, how large the welfare is, but, you know, the welfare has been pretty generous, um, you know, particularly from LBJ's Great Society onwards. You know, you, you mentioned FDR and he kind of, you know, was, you know, yeah. put some of that welfare um, at a lower level in place once upon a time. 
So it tends to disincentivize, obviously, working. Um, it disincentivize, you know, keeping your families together. As you, you're pretty well aware, the black family, you know, is in a terrible state. And it wasn't in a terrible state from the Civil War. Um, in fact, it was in a pretty good state from the civil the end of the Civil War through to about the mid 60s when the Great Society came in. So basically from LBJ's Great Society through to today, you know, the black family is just it's been gutted, basically. Um, and um, so that's that's obviously bad, not just economically, but socially and then feeds into law and order problems. And, and it's ter just terrible for the people, you know, in those neighborhoods. All right. Well, where do we stand in terms of uh, you know the latest on budgets? Uh, you know, the, how how bad is spending under Joe Biden? I mean, it's pretty bad under Donald Trump. It's pretty bad under Barack Obama. Is Biden in a league of his own, or is he just sort of continuing these previous presidents' spending habits, or has he has he gone way above and beyond? Um, look, I, I would say I wouldn't say he's necessarily in a league of his own, but. Um, he, unlike, say, the rest of the, you know, the Western world, um, you can see a lot of the Western world has significantly cut back since the COVID days, whereas, you know, Biden's federal government has used that as an excuse to kind of keep on going. Um, so that's probably the difference. Um, and you're right in terms of spending, you know, when I did my recent study for the Heartland Institute, you know, uh, you know, where I come up with this method of cutting spending, which we can talk about later of CPI minus X. You know, I did a lot of hit kind of looking at the historical data going back to 1970, because that's all that's as far back as it actually went in any sort of detail. So, you know, I have pretty good data from 1970 through to, you know, modern times. And um, you don't see a, a pattern of many good presidencies, basically. Um, so it's, it's usually a case of like, you know, everybody's kind of bad, but who's worse? So who's worse is some of the ones you mentioned. Basically, in terms of one-term presidents, it's Obama and Trump. Sorry, and throw in Biden now. There's just not as much, you know, the data is kind of, you know, a little bit rubbery because it's, you know, it hasn't, you know, the, the further you get away from the data, it gets a little bit more solid when you're kind of in the middle of it. It's not as good. So you can probably throw Biden in with, with Trump um, and Obama. Um, it also, I'd say Obama as a two-term president, along with George W., are the worst um, since 1970. Um, but but the bigger point is really the federal U.S. government has had a problem because um, I, I can. It's part of my studies. I looked at state governments, and and I also divided it up into red states, blue states, purple states, that sort of thing. And even the worst blue states perform usually better than the federal government under Republican. So the problem is really with the federal government, the U.S. federal government in particular, because right. yeah. it, it just it doesn't match up even against the European Union. It looks bad. Well, you mentioned the two worst two terms were um, Obama and George W. Bush and George W. Bush, of course, did the whole 9-11 uh, insane response of 20 year wars and the biosecurity state and all the stuff that he did. Um, sure. But what Patriot the, Act. What were the yeah. two best? I'm guessing two terms would be Bill Clinton probably bested Ronald Reagan is my guess. Is there any truth to that? Because by the end of Clinton, you had to obviously you had polarized economy, a polarized politics with a Republican House Democrat president. But you had low interest rates, low, I believe, low inflation. And you had budget surplus, which I still can't believe in my lifetime that ever happened. Yeah, look, I'd say 
Yeah, that's, you're probably right. This, it, I mean, again, they don't, Clinton's doesn't, when I actually looked at the data itself, that um, putting aside, you know, the surplus. Not, and that's not, not that I'm giving Clinton credit, I'm giving the dynamic of Republican Congress with a Democrat president. Oh, sure, sure. Well, look, you know, Bill Clinton deserves credit, you know, that he did work with Gingrich, just like Reagan, you know, worked with uh, Tip O'Neill back in the day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, so, you know, obviously, Reagan couldn't get as much as he'd want to because of Tip O'Neill, but at least Tip O'Neill gave him some stuff. And then, you know, uh, Newt kind of kept Bill a little bit more honest. So, yeah, look, um, in terms of peer spending, you know, uh, under Clinton, you know, it went up 180%. So, you know, that's not like in spending. So, you know, obviously a budget overall has to account for revenue. So just pure spending went up by 180%. Uh, Reagan, over this is over two terms, went under up by 163%. But, you know, compare that to George W, which went up 600, 603%. So, you know, that's yeah. why I'm saying, you know, no one's that great um it's just like who's less bad no, than someone else yeah yeah you know, unfortunately um so and 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 then to kind of take it back you know for people in the audience who don't know this you know obviously sort of like a, a budget deficit is you know obviously tax revenues and other revenues falling short of the spending um and i should also make the point that um you know the uh, balancing the budget is really a secondary issue um because you, you can balance the budget at much higher spending and much higher taxes, right? So that's not the key thing. So balanced budget amendments, they right. don't work really at the end of the day. In fact, I, I did some work in Maine on the CPI minus X before I did the federal stuff. And I was actually surprised what a hindrance it actually was to getting spending reform because it kind of, it, it prevents you from, depending on how they set it up, it, it really prevents you from, you know, say having a deficit for a year or two, but to, to then get a great spending outcome two years, you know, further on in the future. In other words, you start getting a surplus. But, you know, the point for Maine, you know, cutting the budget wasn't to get a surplus as such. That's kind of a secondary thing that we would also like as well. But the main thing was to reduce spending so you could reduce taxes, you know. And then in the federal case, you have the other complication, um, you know, of inflation, essentially, um, you know, they have they have their own currency, the federal government, whereas the state of Maine does not. So they can actually print money and borrow that out in the markets or they, they go through this kind of laundering process with with government bonds, essentially. You know, they, they might as well just purely just ship the money straight from the Federal Reserve to the Treasury, but they go through a pretend process. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. I, I think last time you surprised me when you said that defense spending really isn't that big of a reason for overspending or deficits or anything. Is it fair to say that a war, like we keep saying George W. Bush was one of the worst, is war generally and wars multiple like Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time, was that more devastating to the federal budget, more spending than all the social spending could ever be? Like when you have a hot war, does that trump in terms of spending Social spending or social services entitlements always going to beat pretty much defense and war budgets. Um, I think you know, for, from the data I recall, it the the welfare is always trumping it. It's not even close. Um, even so now, 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 with the exception of like when I started, you know, the, the data goes back to 1970. So we're going into the Vietnam War. So that was a yeah. bit different. They were spending a lot of money compared to what we ever spent 
you know, in a relative sense, that is not like an ag, you know, an overall absolute sense. So defense yeah. spending, you know, around the early 70s was was about a third or, you know, sort of 30% of the overall federal budget um, during the Vietnam War. Now, nowadays, it's 10%. And and it'll, it'll tick up during, you know, the, the countless Iraq wars and Afghanistan wars. But it doesn't, it's not really the structural problem. Um, you know, I think those wars cause more other problems, you know, like obviously the Patriot Act was used for, you know, particularly if 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 it wasn't used for nefarious purposes under W, it was certainly used under Obama and Biden for nefarious purposes. So I think it's got bigger problems and, you yeah. know, the military industrial complex isn't just really about spending, it's, it's the other stuff that goes with it. Um, so yeah, defense spending is really, yeah, 10% of, of an overall federal budget seems, you know, fairly reasonable to me, to be honest. Um, uh, now, if the federal budget was a lot less, I would be happy for federal, you know, for defense to be back in that third category, because you'd want it to become to, to look more like what the founding fathers intended, you know, the federal government to do, which is defense, you know, and other sort of like national um, law and order type issues, you know, crimes across state borders, um, protecting the country and, and, and stuff to do, you know, not all the ridiculous stuff they do on our interstate commerce, but, you know, kind of the sensible stuff. Um, you know, if you could see a world where the, the, the budget shrunk down, then you'd be happy for defense spending to become a bigger percentage of a much smaller budget. Yes. All right. Well, you you did your um, analysis called the CPI X budget cut solution. Can you lay that out for us here? Like, how do we get at, I mean, let me just say that it seems like, especially Republican presidents, how many Republican presidents have talked about abolishing the Department of Energy? Sorry, it's not going to happen. When uh, I think it was Ron DeSantis said it this time around, I was just like, skip it, Ron. I don't want to hear it. Uh, no one wants to hear that again. I mean, because the odds of it ever happening are statistically nil. So what is your CPI budget X and how do we actually make progress? And you can comment on the Department of Energy. You know, Ronald Reagan did it. Rick Perry, other presidents, they said candidates, they've always said, and they can't close down one department. I think it was not department, Department of Education. Is that what it was? Uh, department of Education. Um, and uh, Rick Perry was talking about shedding EPA, all this ridiculous stuff, too, that just politically you know, there'd be no support for. And there's just silly things to say. But go ahead. Well, look, I, 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 I would love them to say it if they actually meant it. But yeah, but that's yeah. the problem. Is they don't really mean it. So. Um, so yeah, look, my, my CPI minus X is, is something that I learned, uh, this approach was I learned in public utilities regulation. Um, it, it's not so much used in the US, but it's used in, in the United Kingdom, Australia, pretty much the rest of the English speaking world. So it's basically this, you know, this, this um, way of take, allowing for inflation, if you like, I mean, and putting aside that CPI is really just one measure of inflation. It's not inflation itself, right? But look, it's 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 as of all the ones out there, it's it's probably about the best. But it's only really accounting for about um, forty to sixty percent of the economy, depending on how it's defined. But anyway, so CPI, you give them you give them CPI, and that's common because some a lot of their contracts have CPI factored in, whatnot. Um, but then you have the minus X. So the minus X is basically an efficiency benchmark factor, right? An X factor. And, and it's basically built on historical combined with forecast data of themselves. So the US federal government, what have you actually done? What have you actually got cuts? And they have, you know, at, 
kind of like individual agency levels or policy levels, they have actually gotten cuts, you know, over over the years at times from 1970 onwards. So that factors in um, their peers in the OECD, you know, like, um, you know, some European countries, the English speaking countries, Japan, etc. So that factors in, as, you know, how do, how do they compare against them? And I also throw on a third one, which is the states, the 50 states. You know, so I think that, you know, those three are three reasonable benchmarks, you know, basically, it's like creating competition for them where they don't kind of really have competition as such. I mean, they, they a little bit do, you know, certainly corporates can move around, you know, across the world and, and whatnot, individuals, if they're a bit richer, kind of, but so anyway, this is what they call benchmark competition, essentially. Um, so basically, it's, it's as objective approach you can get. You know, there's always a bit of subjectivity, subjectivity and judgment in this, but it's pretty objective and you can trace, you know, how we did it back to official statistics. You know, and I mainly, I pretty much use the OECD for the US because the US's own data is kind of lousy, basically. So I have to use the OECD, um, but it also makes it more comparable to other countries when you're using the OECD. I'm not, I'm not sort of backing the OECD on a broader concept, but their statistics are pretty good. Um, and then I also use the US Census. Strangely enough, they have really good state budget information. I wish they actually did federal government too, because they actually do a very good job with the, with the state yeah. governments. Um, so it, it's, it's a way, and what happens at, you know, the headline at the end of the day is like, I give them, well, I don't really give them, the data actually gives them three decades to cut every single agency, you know, down to size so that the overall budget goes from, you know, uh, basically halves to 50% over three presidential terms. So by 2038, it gets you back to 2008 levels, right before the, the global financial crisis hit. So, you know, like that, that's pretty doable. I mean, that's, that's, that's 12 years um, to get back to 2008 levels, you know, actual dollars. So these, and then what happens there is it, it, it produces 20 grand per taxpayer every year, you know, like in terms of like having a tax break worth of 20 grand, how you do it, you could either like literally give them money back, or you could just make sure that their taxes were lower at that sort of level. And, and here's the other great one, it actually, at the exact same time, that money not only gives you 20 grand per year to taxpayers, but it gets rid of the debt to zero if you wanted to get it down to zero. Wow. Now, how would this be implemented? Is this basically Congress has to pass it, the Senate, and then the president signs it? Is this like a, or is it something that could even be done through the, you know, Biden doesn't use the legislator anymore. Could this be done with the right president through executive orders, through the Office of Management and Budget, through the Treasury, or does this have to go through the traditional legislative process to implement your system, the, the CPIX budget? Um, CPI minus X. Don't forget that minus. Oh, minus X. Sorry about that. Yes, minus X. And the good part is, is the the minus X ends up being bigger than the CPI, which is the, the you know why it goes yeah. down. So um, look, you know, even though I do have a law degree, um, I'm not a lawyer. So um, <laughs> right, right. That's a good question. I think I think you could do either or both. So basically, the 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 thing that would stick the most would be if you do it through Congress, right? And the and you know the president signs off on it, you know that that makes it harder to change obviously in the future, but I you know look subject to what you know sort of lawyers think, um, I think you could do it by executive order as well. You'd probably want to do it both. Like you basically, if you were a president who was serious 
Um, and you would come in, you'd sign the executive order to start making it happen right away with the hope that you could also get, you know, an act of, of Congress passed as well. Um, but you should be able to do it by executive order in the sense of like, you know, this is aimed at the agencies, right? At the end of the day, yeah. you know, so you could, even if, Congress wanted to throw a bunch of money at you for no good reason, even if you didn't want it, you could, just, you could still go like, look, and the great thing about CPI minus X, besides being kind of pretty objective, everybody gets a haircut, right? But, but a haircut based on their own past performance. So if the EPA has gotten certain level of cuts over the years, well, we're going to, we're going to hold you to that, right? You're going to do it again. So you basically get like a cap basically. And the president could go, look, look, you know, here's your cap for this year. Here's your cap for next year. In fact, I can tell you what your cap's going to look like for the next 12 years, but obviously only will roll that out on a year to year basis. And that's fine. The EPA or whoever could come back and go, okay, we're meeting our cap. And you'd probably want them to say, hey, okay, so how are you meeting your cap? Because we don't, you know, obviously we'd like to see internally, you know, what yeah. you're cutting, what you're not cutting. You know, you might go like, well, we're certainly not going to cut any diversity officers, you know, and then the president might go, yeah, well, how about you get rid of that first before you get rid of you know, your program to deal with like sludge in a river, you know what I mean? That type of stuff. So, um, you know, that's obviously a second, well, you know, a secondary budget issue, but you give them a cap, everybody gets a haircut, but they don't get the same haircut. So if you thought about it in th three kind of tiers, the core government functions, you know, defense, law and order, all that, they get the smallest haircut, but they do get a haircut. Um, the medium level stuff, um, which you might find the EPA in that middle level, they'll get a, a bigger haircut. And the cronies, this is my favorite, the crony, the crony stuff, where they're just giving money out to their friends, that gets the biggest yeah. cut. Yeah. Sadly, uh, in fact, as you know, the EPA actually has a lot of cronyism in it as well. So, you know, you, you probably get rid of all their ridiculous um, uh, dodgy climate science, and maybe they should go back to worrying about, you know, actual pollution in a river somewhere. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, you also have uh, spending is the key to what you call defunding the left. Uh, is that part of what you just mentioned there? But can you tell us some of the benefits of that? And what does defund the left mean? Is the is the left somehow written into our federal budget that they get funded and conservatives don't? Is there a, is there a uh, disproportionate amount of money going to the left? Um, there is definitely a disproportionate amount of, well, it starts out with like most of the bureaucracy itself is to the left already. So basically yeah. the left, even though they do have their own think tanks, um, their biggest think tank, well, their two biggest think tanks are, is the, the bureaucracy itself and academia. Not, not and again, not, not the entire academia, you know, you're not going to count like Hillsdale college and, and George Mason and all that sort of stuff. But, um, so th there's kind of multiple things that are happening but i guess two things that stand out is yes they send out subsidies to mainly left-wing causes right um you know and and also the other thing they do is they help the the corporate woke folks and how they do that is basically you give them it's not so much you give them subsidies you give them favorable regulations that basically either help keep competition out or certainly make it difficult for people to enter their markets. You know, like that, um, I believe it's that section 230 for, um, you know, for instance, like for social media yeah. companies. Yeah, yeah that's, okay. a, that, that's like basically giving them cartel power. It doesn't literally say that anywhere, that that's what they're doing, but that's the purpose really at the end of the day. I mean, and even, and even if it's not the purpose, 
you know, as an economist, that's at least an unintended consequence that you should really do something about. So, you know, like, you know, you've, I've heard the term, you may even use it, you know, go woke, go broke. Well, yeah. sadly, they don't. Um, and the reason they often don't is because they got, they can dominate their market because of these special government favors. Um, some even get subsidies and whatnot. And you know, obviously the renewable energy industry is, is a classic, you know, they, they have both, they have regulations that prop them up, but they also have obviously lots of actual subsidies and then throw in kind of unfair tax breaks. And yeah, I, I won't bore you as an economist that there actually is a difference between a subsidy and a tax break, but um, anyway, they throw all that stuff at the renewables energy industry. Um, so, you know, the key ultimately, it, it takes money to do stuff. So it takes, if you want to over-regulate something as a bureaucrat, you need funding to do it. If you want to yeah. prop up renewable energy, you need funding to do it, right? So um, so really defund the left is, is it, it may not be the ultimate key, but it's certainly a top three key to, to you know, winning this battle. Okay, we have to take a break. We're talking with Darren Nelson, The Economist. And when we come back, I'd like to ask you about the Biden administration, inflation, uh, and even a little bit of modern monetary theory. It just seems like no one votes for tax increases anymore. They just print more money. Uh, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The phantasmagorical farce of a Soviet-style show trial in which we had verdict first and then trial presided over by Judge Arthur Engron in Manhattan has concluded. And it's a big story, not just for the absurd verdict handed down by Engron, but no, a deeper story involving Engron himself, or more specifically how he chooses to present himself to the public. Uncombed hair, unkempt clothes, sloppily knotted ties. Basically a man who doesn't care, a man who has no self-respect. And he has unwittingly become a symbol for what ails America. We've become a slovenly nation. Our streets are filthy. Our subways are unsafe. People board airplanes looking like they just rolled out of bed in three-week-old gym clothes. Where's the self-respect, America? Where's the, the pride in being Americans? Where's the pride in having beautiful parks and clean subway stations? and wonderful cultural amenities. What has happened to America? It's time we get our self-respect back. And those of us who are self-respecting, we need to do a better job of holding our fellow citizens to a higher standard. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. I said, could she die? And the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe and I thought, you know, what are we going to do if I die here? <laughs> How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush. 
From wars to censorship to cultural issues, you're with Mark Morano and Unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We're continuing our discussion with economist Darren Nelson. Um, one of the things the Biden administration is doing is they're basically blaming companies for increasing inflation. This is the clip of uh, Jared Bernstein, the White House aide, who's basically saying companies need to lower prices, and he's sort of laying out, it's it's not that bad. Let's play clip four. Some data, it's up to 11.3 percent, just one-tenth of a percent lower than the most recent historic high being spent on food. What is going on? Why can the government not figure this piece of the pie out? Well, first of all, let me just give you one fact on on food inflation, uh, and then we'll get into the very important things you're raising. So a year ago, uh, the inflation for groceries was 11 percent. So just off the the charts, that was uh, I think that was January 23. In the most recent month, grocery inflation was 1.2 percent, one tenth of what it was. So a very big deceleration in grocery inflation. But it's still inflation. And one of the things you're talking about is the fact that some of these prices need to come down further. And when we say our work isn't done, that's precisely what we mean. So, Darren, uh, inflation's down from a year ago. It's dramatically down. This is a, a victory, a success story. Uh, and also we had Justin Trudeau uh, doing a whole stick about grocery stores and how the, the corporate owners need to lower their prices, that they're greedy. We've heard the same thing with Biden uh, during the height of the, uh, his restrictions and the Russian invasion of Ukraine with all of the sanctions, that when we were paying for more oil, it was the greedy oil companies. Uh, when you look at this, first of all, is inflation doing a lot better? Is this, is this the hidden success story of Biden? And secondly, are the companies responsible for high prices, or could the government have something to do with it? Um, in, in a nutshell, inflation is is basically slightly less bad. That's it. It's not good. Um, well, what they do is they often, you know, they, they play, you know, the best thing is to look at, you know, for instance, with CPI, Consumer Price Index, the best thing is, um, sure, that's fine. You can kind of look at what the rate is as it goes from, quarter to quarter or year to year and that gives you some sort of information um but the better information is just to look at the index you know as a whole as basically it it tracks and it's just going up and up and up and then okay sometimes the the horrible rise slows down a little bit particularly you know you know in recent times particularly since covid but also probably longer since the obama era it's been pretty bad um so in a nutshell, no. Um, the other thing is, you know, this is this is government who are drive inflation basically through their central banks. So, you know, obviously in the U.S. it's the Federal Reserve. I'm not sure what the Canadian central bank's called, um, but every country has a central bank. So that's where you that's the primary place where you look for inflation because you know, as Milton Friedman, you know, sort of famously said, and he, he did the, he did the most comprehensive study ever on this in terms of an empirical study. We already knew from economic logic that that's what inflation was. It's the money supply, right? But anyway, just to confirm, because people like empirics, you know, they like statistics and all that sort of stuff. So Friedman looked throughout sort of U.S. history. Every time there was you know significant inflation, it was always because they were printing too much money, right? Um, so we've we've had you know, a central bank consistently in the U.S. since 1913. Um, and inflation, surprise, surprise, has been consistently bad since 1913. Um, 
in previous times in U.S. history, they've had central banks that come in and lo and behold, inflation's terrible. They get rid of the central bank. It comes back to being something normal. So um, companies like anybody else, you know, they they, they usually can't just, um, uh, you know, sort of afford to reduce the prices necessarily because they have their own sort of supply chain um, and whatnot. So it's not their fault at the end of the day. All right. Well, thank you very much. We're out of time.